Now, in case you're afraid that I'm going to try this morning to preach through the entirety of Hebrews 11, relax. I have no such designs. But I do want to speak about faith. In the first message that we had about faith, I gave a word of instruction. And in that word of instruction, I wanted you to understand something. I wanted you to learn something. I wanted you to primarily learn what faith is. And that faith is the capacity of the human soul to see the invisible reality of the spiritual world that can't be seen with the human eye. And that specific capacity involves confidence. And it's like a bullseye, target. And the outer rim of the target is confidence in God and confidence in the word of God. Confidence in God's word that is reliable and true and confidence in God that he is real and good. And then the inner part of that target, the bullseye, is confidence in the gospel of Christ that it is true and confidence in Jesus Christ, God the Son, God the Word incarnate, that he is able and willing to save sinners who call upon him. Confidence in him that calls on him and rests in him and him alone for salvation from sin. Last time, I wanted to give you what I would call a word of warning or protection. I wanted you to be able to discern the difference between genuine saving faith and counterfeit versions of faith. The faith of a heretic or the faith of a hypocrite, or the faith of an apostate. We saw that genuine saving faith always produces a godly life, and such was the case with Abraham, as was confirmed in what we read this morning. Now, so much for review. And unless you change the way that clock goes, that was two minutes. Now, I don't feel guilty about giving a two-minute review. So now, where are we going today? Well, today, it's not so much a word of instruction or a word of uh, protection or warning, but today, I have a word of exhortation or motivation. I want to motivate you not only to believe in Christ, but also those of you who are Christians. I want to motivate you to live by faith. Now, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the ministry of the word this morning. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you that it is infallible. Thank you that it is reliable. Thank you that everything you say is true and it is inerrant, and we can trust it and rely on it. Pray that we would rely on the Bible in general and on the gospel in particular and on Christ to save us, and Christ alone to save us. We plead with you, dear God, to give faith to those that don't have it, and to strengthen and increase the faith of those that do. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to focus now on the benefits of faith. I want to motivate you today highly to value faith and to live by faith. 
The scripture says in John chapter 20, verses 28 to 31, Thomas answered and said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. The context, remember the other apostles were all gathered together. They saw the resurrected Christ. They were glad. They were shocked. But they saw Jesus alive from the dead with their own eyes. And, they, and Thomas wasn't there. And they went and told Thomas, Thomas, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. He's raised from the dead. Thomas says, I don't care what you say. I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes. That's the context. And so the next week on a Sunday night, Jesus comes and stands in the midst and said, Thomas, here I am. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Those of us that are Christians here have never seen the resurrected Christ with our own eyes. We've never seen what Thomas saw, the mark of the nails and the mark of the spear. Never saw it. Thomas saw it. We've never seen it. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Then in verse 30 we read, Many other signs therefore Jesus did in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We also read Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Because if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes to righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And again, verse 11 says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, and is rich to all that call upon him for whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So these texts associate two wonderful, inestimable, that is valuable beyond human ability to estimate how valuable they are. Blessings, gifts from God, associated with faith. Do you notice what they are in the text? Let me read again. And that believing you may have life in his name. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These two great, precious, wonderful blessings are life and salvation. Life and salvation. First of all, life. So somebody might say, well, what do you mean life? I'm already alive. 
In one sense, yes. You have physical or bodily life. Your body lives. And the body, apart from the soul, is dead. The day is coming, unless Jesus comes back first, when every one of us is going to experience death. Our soul is going to be separated from our body, and our body is going to die and return to dust. You know this, right? Where are all the people born in 1800, 1700, 1600? 1,500, 1,900, unless there's somebody 121 years old, the vast majority of the people born in 1,900 are dead. My father, born in 1,910, dead. My mother lived to be 98, born in 1,913, dead. And she was the last of all the people she knew, of all of her relatives. We were saying to my wife, we're getting up in the front of the line here in our 70s because God says that our life is going to last between 70 or 80 years. So you say, well, see, I'm already alive. I'm still in my teens or I'm still in my 20s or I'm in my 30s. I'm alive. What do you mean I'm going to have life? This is not talking about physical life. It's talking about spiritual and eternal life. It's talking about not the life of your body. It's talking about the life of your soul. And if you're living in sin, you're already dead spiritually. And someday, you're going to be totally, completely dead. I, I can't even say a phrase like that without thinking about mostly dead. You're more than mostly dead. Your body's dying. If you're not in Christ, your soul is totally dead. And you're headed for a place that the scripture calls the second death. Don't be afraid of those that can kill the body, Jesus said, but rather be afraid of the one that can destroy both body and soul in hell. Speaks about the lake of fire. After the second coming of Christ, the dead, all of them, will be raised. Even the wicked will be raised. And the souls that are in hell will be reunited to their dead bodies. Then they will stand before God in judgment. Then they'll go off to a place called the lake of fire, which is the second death. Where body and soul suffer divine punishment forever. That's the ultimate, final, complete and total death, separation from God in a place of torment, body and soul, forever. So when Jesus says that those who believe have life, he means that they have spiritual life and that they have eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God. Eternal life is a personal relationship and communion with God of knowing God. Spiritual life is a living, personal, gospel fellowship with God in Jesus Christ. And eternal life lasts forever. 
in a place called new heavens and earth. Just like the second death lasts forever in a place called the lake of fire. So when Jesus says that believers have life, he's not talking about physical life. When he says that only believers have life, he's talking about spiritual and eternal life. And he's saying that the only ones that will be resurrected from spiritual death and have eternal life of fellowship with God here in this world and eternal life in resurrection glory in the new heavens and earth are those that believe in him. Now that, I say, is a blessing. That is a blessing that is in its value incalculable. Why not? Because by faith we can see that world to come. We can see it, not physically, but we can see it with the eyes of faith. We don't know physically exactly what it's going to be. But we know it's going to be wonderful. And we know it's going to be real. And the only ones that are going there are those that believe. And if you believe, that's where you'll spend eternity. And if you don't believe, where you'll spend eternity is in the lake of fire. See, why are you saying all this? Because I want to persuade you to believe. Why would you want to spend eternity in the lake of fire? Why would you want to continue to live in this world in a state of spiritual death? And why would you want to experience eternal death at the second coming of Christ? Why would you want that? I hope you don't. There's a second thing that these texts speak about. They don't only speak about life, they also speak about salvation. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and if you call upon him, you'll be saved. So it means if in your heart you believe the gospel, you regard the gospel to be true, that tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead, literally and bodily. And then you call upon this living Jesus. Lord Jesus, rescue me. And you trust him and him alone. You will be saved. You will be rescued. You say, well, why do I need to be rescued? What do I need to be saved from? Why would I call on this Jesus to rescue me from it? Those reasonable questions? I'm telling you, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be saved. So what do you need to be saved from? And why ask him to rescue you from it? Whatever it is. I was thinking about the animals that live around my house. What if man's just a, an animal? Why do animals need to be rescued anyway? What, what, what's... I mean, why do the deer need to be saved? What do they need to be saved from? Well, probably from the coyotes. What about a bear? What does that need to be saved from? So if man's just an animal, why does he need to be saved? You know, animals don't need to be saved. Maybe the cat needs to be saved from the dog, or the dog needs to be saved from the skunk, or the chickens need to be saved from the hawk, because there's danger, etc., Is that it all? Is that, is that what you need to be saved from? Bears and coyotes, hawks? What are we talking about? 
We're not talking about animal rescue. We're not talking about man being an animal. Man is a creature, yes. He's not an animal. He's a very special creature made as God's image, as a living, visible representation of God. And he has a never-dying soul that a bear doesn't have, or a deer, or a coyote, or a hawk, or a chicken, or a cat. Don't get me started on cat. Let's just leave it at that and say man is not just an animal. It's a very special creature. When God made him, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the animals. Human life has value. It has purpose. It has meaning. It has special meaning and purpose. And yet, when people reject the Bible and reject what it says about creation and tell you that man is just an, an animal like any other animal and that human life doesn't have any special meaning or purpose, if that's what you've been taught, if that's what you believe, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if you then say, well, what do I need to be saved from? I'm no different than a, than a coyote or a bear or a cat. See, that kind of stuff is completely false. What you need to be saved from is sin. And cats don't sin, even if I'm allergic to them. Even if they behave, and never mind how they behave, they don't sin against God. Cats don't sin. Bears don't sin. Coyotes don't sin. Chickens don't sin. Human beings sin. They disobey God. And because they disobey God and sin against God, they're under the wrath and judgment of God. And the wrath and judgment of God for sin is what human beings need to be saved from. And we all have sin, and we all need to be saved from sin, and the wrath of God upon human sin. That's what we need to be saved from. And if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved from sin and from the wrath of God upon human sin. And why call upon Jesus to save from sin and God's wrath? Because Jesus is the only one that is able to save from sin. And he saves from sin through his perfect life. And he saves from sin through his atoning death. Because his perfect life is all the virtue, all the righteousness that any sinner needs to be accepted with God. And his death on the cross is all the atonement all the satisfaction for justice, all the appeasement of divine wrath that any sinner needs to be pardoned by God. That's why Jesus alone can save. That's why faith is the means of salvation. Because by faith we call upon Jesus 
and Jesus alone. By faith, we rely on Jesus. By faith, we trust in Jesus to save us and rescue us from sin and the wrath of God. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, delivered, rescued from sin and the wrath of God. Rescued from the penalty of sin. Rescued from the power of sin. Rescued in the glorification of the soul and resurrection of the body from the very presence of sin. Rescued forever and ever. Only Jesus can rescue. And he is willing and able to rescue from sin and the wrath of God all who call upon him. So call upon him. And you will be rescued from your sin and from the wrath of God upon your sin. And there's more. One more thing. And I thought I could open this up, but... Uh, I think we'll, we'll just stick with primary salvation from sin and life. And there's one other thing that comes. One other great blessing. It's almost like it's too much to even begin to talk about it, but it has to be said. In Acts 26, verse 18, Jesus is telling Paul, Paul's recounting what the Lord said to him about his ministry. That it was to send the apostle to the Gentiles all around to the nations to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power or authority of Satan to God for them to receive forgiveness or remission of sins and inheritance among them that are sanctified. How? Remission, inheritance, salvation, inheritance, how? By faith in me. He that comes to God, as we read in Hebrews 11.6, must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The promise to Abraham and to his descendants that he would inherit the world is through the righteousness of faith in order that that inheritance would be received by all Abraham's spiritual children, whether they're Jewish or Gentile. Dear friends, God promises life, fellowship with himself, and eternal resurrection life in new heavens and earth. He promises salvation, deliverance, Rescue from sin and wrath to all who believe. Life to all who believe. Salvation to all who believe. And more, an inheritance. Houses and lands are an inheritance from fathers. But this inheritance comes from God that he gives to all his children. It's almost like it's too good to be true. He takes us into his family. He brings us to the number of his own children. He adopts us. He regenerates us into his spiritual family. And then he gives us blessedness in this life. The down payment of that inheritance is the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in our hearts so that whatever we go through, we are never alone. And that inheritance is received in full at the second coming of Christ. 
the resurrection glory and whatever blessing and glory and occupation and possession he gives us in new heavens and earth. It's all part of that inheritance that he promises us in Christ. It's hard to describe what it's going to be. It's going to say that the crown of glory is reserved for all who love his appearing. It's not just that he's going to rescue believers. It's not just that he's going to give them communion and fellowship with himself and resurrection, continued resurrection life in the new heavens and earth. But in that new heavens and earth and in that resurrection life and upon that rescue, he is going to bless his children with great inheritance, unfathomable, unknowable in this life in terms of all of its details, but glorious and blessed beyond description. This is what he promises to those who believe. So it's not just salvation. It's not just life. There's an inheritance that goes with that life and with that salvation. So the Lord says, Look to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And then he goes on to say, Look, look to me now and be saved, because the day is coming when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Says in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are red, they're going to be white as well. I'm going to wash away all the guilt and the pollution of your sin. Jesus, when he was here on earth, said, Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll have life in his name. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be rescued and saved from sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have inheritance among the people of God that are set apart for his honor and glory. An inheritance that doesn't fade away, that's reserved for you in heaven and in the new heavens and earth. The down payment of which will be the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in your heart by faith. Let's reason together. He'll forgive your sins. He'll give you life. You'll inherit new heavens and earth along with Abraham and all his spiritual children. Why would you not trust in Jesus? Call upon him to save you. There's nobody else that could save you. There's nobody else that could rescue you. Only Jesus. And he's willing to receive you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, that's the first part of the exhortation I wanted to give this morning. The final part of it focuses on believers. I thought of breaking it up into a separate sermon. Could be. But I want to address what the scripture says about various aspects of living by faith. I want to try to motivate us 
who believe in the Lord Jesus, who have called upon him and do call upon him to say this, who have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and the hope of inheritance, believe that the Bible is true and that the gospel is true and trust in God and trust in Christ and call upon him to save us. So what then should we do? How should we live? First of all, we should preserve unity by faith. Secondly, cultivate humility by faith. Maintain stability by faith. Evaluate reality by faith. And overcome hostility by faith. Now, I can't go into all these in detail because I could see five sermons on this. I just want to give you an exhortation, motivate you to live by faith. And live by faith in conjunction with these issues unity, humility, stability, reality, hostility. So, how does living by faith relate to unity? Well, in Romans chapter 1, verse 12, it says, that I may be comforted together with or in you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. That's how the King James translated ASV, a little different. That is, that I with you may be comforted in you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's something that we're called upon to do as a church and as Christians. How do we do that? We do that when mutually we comfort and commune with each other by faith. Your faith and mine. My faith strengthens your faith. Your faith strengthens my faith. How do we do that? if we don't ever fellowship together? How do we do that if we don't ever talk to each other? How do we do that if we don't commune with each other and know each other and take the time to speak about spiritual things with each other, to support and encourage and strengthen each other? That's how we maintain and preserve the unity of the Spirit, by mutually comforting, supporting each other in our faith. That is, that I with you may be comforted in you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. You have faith, I have faith. How do we strengthen, maintain, preserve spiritual unity? By communing with each other and strengthening and supporting one another's faith. It's one of the reasons why I've been so concerned about the negative impact of this pandemic on the church. The whole idea that we're going to do church over the phone. And we're not going to see each other anymore. We're not going to talk to each other anymore. Not going to fellowship to each other anymore. That church is just going to be listening to somebody on the phone. Never interacting. Never talking. Never supporting. Never seeing never fellowshipping, none of that stuff. That's very dangerous. That is not going to preserve the unity of the Spirit. 
One of the things that he wants us to do, according to this, is to be with each other and fellowship with each other and talk to each other. And the way we live by faith is by faith. My faith strengthens your faith and your faith strengthens my faith so that when we see each other and we talk to each other, we're talking about spiritual things and we're communicating the realities of our faith to each other and supporting each other and maintaining spiritual unity through that communion and that fellowship and that conversation and that interaction, not in isolation, but in community. Community, unity, mutual support of faith. That's how you live by faith. You see it in the text? Even if you're not looking at the text, let me read it again. That is, that I with you may be comforted in you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Explain to me how that happens over the phone. Just by one-way communication, only listening, never talking. How is that mutual? Explain that to me. That mutual? What do you think, yes or no? It's not. It's not good enough. It's not how the church is going to maintain unity. If that goes on, what's going to happen is the unity of the people of God is going to be destroyed. Because God designed us for mutuality. Unity and mutuality. That we would support and strengthen each other personally. My faith, your faith, your faith, my faith. Through communication and fellowship. Not through one-sided communication and somebody just listening over the phone. Now, look, I understand that there are people that are shut in by the providence of God and they can't get out when they would want to. And I would far rather have something available for them that they can listen to. But what won't do is to think that that's going to replace the fellowship of the saints and the communion of the saints and saints getting together with each other and mutually supporting each other in their faith. We can't have online religion that's impersonal without personal contact, fellowship, and support. That's not living by faith. I said my piece. So there's my exhortation. First point, live by faith, what does that mean? It means mutually support each other. Preserve the unity of the Holy Spirit, mutually supporting each other in our faith. Secondly, cultivate humility by faith. Cultivate humility by faith. Faith is contrary to self-righteous bragging. It's contrary to arrogant condescension that looks down on other people. And it is contrary to self-inflation that is pushy in promoting yourself and your influence among the people of God. Say, where does the Bible say that? Well, Romans 3, 27, 28. Where then is the bragging? It is excluded. By what law of works? No, by a law of faith. Because we reckon that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And Ephesians 2.8, By grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. 
It's the gift of God, not of works that no man should boast. We cultivate humility by faith. By faith, we rest on Christ and his work and his righteousness, not ours, as the only ground of our acceptance with God. By faith, we rest on Christ and his atonement, not anything we ever did to make up for the wrongs we've done. We have nothing to brag about. By faith we realize that our salvation by faith is a gift of God. That God gave us salvation by faith. That God gave us faith and God saved us by faith. And all of that is God's gift. And we don't have anything to brag about. So to God be all the credit. To God be all the glory. Salvation by grace, by means of faith, calls us to cultivate humility. A humility that is contrary to bragging and boasting about our religion. And furthermore, it's contrary to arrogant, racist, moral superiority that thinks that we are better than other human beings. Romans 11 verse 20 says, well, by unbelief they were broken off, referring to the Jewish unbelievers broken off of the society of God's people. And you stand by faith. Don't be high-minded, but fear. Don't go around saying, well, I'm better than those unbelieving Jews. No, you're not. No, you're not. Don't be high-minded. Don't have an arrogant, condescending attitude of superiority to others. I'm better than these people. I'm better than those people. No, you're not. Faith says you're not. Faith says you're not morally superior by nature to anyone. Jews are not morally superior by nature to Gentiles, and Gentiles are not morally superior by nature to Jews. But we testified before that we're all under sin, and we're all hell-deserving sinners, no matter what our ethnicity. There's no basis for eth ethnic arrogance and prejudice. Looks down on people with a different ethnicity as though we are somehow morally superior to them. We are not. And faith calls us to a humility that recognizes that. Furthermore, faith keeps us from being pushy and arrogant about our influence. Romans 12.3 For I say through the grace given to me to every man among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think but to think soberly that is to sobriety according as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. So if God has given to you the gift to have influence among God's people. God will open the door. You don't have to be pushy. You don't have to stick your nose through it. You don't have to push it down. God will open the door. God will make the way. We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Faith says God gave the gift. God will give the opportunity. 
I just want to be a good steward of what God has given me. God will make the way. I don't have to be pushy to promote myself arrogantly beyond what opportunity God gives me. Faith calls us to cultivate humility in respect to our gifts, in respect to our attitudes toward people of different ethnicity, and with respect to self-righteousness. Faith calls us to cultivate, cultivate a humility that gives all the glory to God for salvation and knows it's God's gift. That doesn't think that we're any better by nature than anybody else. And it says, whatever gifts God's given me, God will open the doors for me to use them in his way and in his time. And I don't have to be pushy about it. Well, what if people don't recognize my gift? Okay. What if they don't? Does that mean you have to be pushy? Or should you have faith that trusts in God that in God's way, God's time, God will open the doors and give the opportunity to use it in whatever way he wants. That's how faith helps us to cultivate humility. Does that make sense? All right, thirdly, stand firm by faith. Again, I'm just going to summarize it. It could be a whole sermon. Colossians 2.5 says, For though I'm absent in the flesh, I'm with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing and beholding your order and the steadfastness, the stability of your faith in Christ. Rooted and built in him, he says. Stand therefore, rooted and built in him, established in your faith as you were taught. Verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. Stand firm in the faith because, as we saw last time, genuine faith lasts throughout life. And there are people, there are people who renounce what they once professed to believe and go back into the world that once they professed to leave. And they go back. They said, I repent, I believe. They join the church. Then, Things get hot. Things come troublesome. There's a price to be paid. And they say, I'm not up for that. And they go back into the world. Be careful. Stand firm. Stability. Maintained by faith. And one of, the, one of those passages that has so much information about the dangers. Watch out for this. The, the pastoral epistles are just full of these warnings about faith. We saw last time about people that overthrow other people's faith with their heresy and their false doctrine. Watch out for false teachers. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience with some having put away, made shipwreck concerning the faith, concerning faith. You could make shipwreck concerning your faith. Stand firm. Watch out what you listen to. Don't put yourself 
under the influence of everybody and anybody that claims to be Christian and teaches all kinds of stuff. I've seen it happen. I've seen people that once sat under the ministry of the word and identified with the people of God and identified with a godly orthodox Christian confession of faith. I've seen them come under the influence of false teachers. Some of them in college. Some of them in seminary. Some of them in churches. In various places. Come under the influence of these false teachers. Receive that false teaching. And have their souls and their lives destroyed. And their faith ruined. Because they listened to some professor. That had a saintly smile. And a lot of white hair. White hair and a saintly smile doesn't make somebody a safe guide. They have to speak according to the word of God. There are so many pressures on us today to deny the truth of the scripture. Because we are being told that if you believe the Bible, you're an idiot. You believe the Bible, you're a fool. You believe the Bible, you're against science. And you're not even worthy to be respected. You need to be canceled. Shut up. Silence. You believe what the Bible says about creation. You believe what the Bible says about marriage. You believe what the Bible says about masculinity and femininity. You need to be shut up. Canceled. You can't be taken seriously. You're an idiot. You're a fool. You think that kind of pressure is real? Am I making it up? It's real. Don't give in to it. Stand firm in the faith. Don't go back. Don't give in. Don't give up. Stand firm in the faith. In spite of all the pressures of the world to deny it. To deny literal creation through the word of God. To deny that God made a man and a woman. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Subdue it. We're being pressured to deny that. Being pressured to deny that the Bible is true. That what it says is really historically accurate. Your faith is under attack. Our society hates it and is out to destroy it. Don't go back. Don't give in. Don't give up. Stand firm in the faith. By faith, maintain stability. By believing God's word. Believing God's gospel. Trusting in God. Trusting in Christ calling on him. You see why I said that could be a whole sermon? Could, right? And this is part of what motivated me to say it. If you put the brothers in mind of these things, remind them you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of the faith. And the good doctrine which you followed until now. 
What if you don't remind them? Because it's not popular. What if you don't remind them? Because there are consequences. You're not going to be a good minister of Jesus Christ if you don't. Got to be said. The knowledge of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. But then, have a fourth thing to say, and time is fleeting on. I'm going to get to it quickly. Evaluate reality. That is, everything that happens and everything that is evaluated by faith. Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And James says, Paul and James agreeing. They do agree. Knowing this, that the proving of your faith works patience. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18 is the background of that statement. This statement counted all joy, my brothers, when you fall into all kinds of trials, knowing that the proving of your faith works patience. How do you see those trials? How do you see the sufferings? He says, we look not on the things that are temporal, but the things that are eternal. We, we reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Faith sees the sufferings, but faith looks at something else. It looks at the eternal glory that comes, that the sufferings, the light afflictions of this life are working for us, producing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's what faith sees. It feels the suffering, but it sees the glory. It feels the hurt. It sees what's coming. It evaluates reality in light of glory, in light of eternity, in light of the invisible world that the physical eyes can't see, in light of regarding God's word and God's promise to be true. When God says he's going to raise us from the dead, faith believes it. When God says Jesus is coming back, faith believes it. When God says he's making a new heavens and a new earth where we're going to dwell with him forever, faith believes it. And faith evaluates all the realities of this world in the light of the realities of that great, invisible, glorious world and the truthfulness of God. Evaluate reality by faith. Everything that is, everything that happens, evaluate it by faith. And let that evaluation affect your emotive response to whatever happens. Count it all, my, all joy, my brothers, when all kinds of trouble happens to you, knowing that the proving of your faith is going to be used of God to work grace in your life. Count it all joy. Don't be complaining and bitter against God. Don't feel sorry for yourself. Turn against God. Blame God, all this stuff. Instead of complaining and blaming God and becoming bitter and self-pitying, look at all the sufferings and disappointments and hurts of this life. Seeing them in light of the eternal world by faith, of God's purpose and God's promise. My faith. And then one final thing to say this morning. 
overcome hostility by faith. What hostility? Well, the Apostle Peter speaks of it. Whom withstand, 1 Peter 5, 9, steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brothers who are in the world. And John speaks of it in 1 John 5, 4. For whatsoever is begotten or born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcome the world, even our faith. Overcome hostility. What hostility? Folks, we live in an environment of danger and hostility and spiritual war. The devil is against us and against God. He tells us lies about God. He tells us lies about the Bible. He says that God is not good. He says that the Bible, the word of God, is not true. He says that Jesus can't be trusted, that he's not alive. Just He's dead just like anybody else. That's a lie. Withstand him steadfast in your faith. Furthermore, we have the world. We have so much evil that's going on. Many things have happened to many saints that have been mistreated, tyrannized, oppressed, persecuted, hated, maligned. How do we overcome that? Not by becoming bitter or vengeful or revengeful. How do you overcome the world? Don't be overcome or conquered by evil, but conquer, overcome evil with good. And how does faith do that? Because faith believes the promises of God. Romans 12, 19, 21 tells you how faith overcomes the world, how it overcomes the devil. Because God says, do not avenge yourselves, beloved, but defer to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Faith believes that. So faith says, I'm not going to become bitter. I'm not going to become vengeful. But I believe you, God. I believe that Jesus is coming. I believe there will be a day of judgment. I believe that every single thing that was wrong, that was done to me, that was said about me, it would all be made right, and you'll make it right here. You take it. I'm not going to live as a bitter person with hate and malice and vengeance in my heart. That's how faith overcomes evil with good. I'm not living like that. Doesn't matter what they did to me. Doesn't matter what they said about me. God's going to deal with it. Faith believes that. Faith relies on that. Faith credits that. And faith, in that way, overcomes the world. Faith conquers the world. This is the victory, even our faith. Well, now I'm done. Should have been a separate sermon, you think? Five separate sermons, you think? Preserve unity by faith. Cultivate humility by faith. Maintain stability by faith. Evaluate reality by faith. Overcome hostility by faith. May God be pleased, dear people, to help us to live by faith. Let's close in prayer.